books on this church-state relationship issue. I started this a, a while back, but I'm going to finish that. And the third lesson, we're just going to focus in and try to draw lessons to learn from Daniel and church and state. The reason we have... Uh, You've got to start. The reason we have, uh, you've got to start it already? Okay. The reason we, are, we went to Daniel first and spent much of our time there was, you know, to be quite honest with you, if I wanted to give somebody an answer to how's the right relationship we should have on church and state, rather than read all of these treatises that I'm going to talk about, I'd refer you to the book of Daniel because that's really the best biblical framework for that. Uh, and uh, so that's why we went through that. And in, and in Daniel, just to summarize some of the key messages, I saw two potential outcomes, I saw two real applications of Daniel. One of them was in our understanding of Revelation Scripture and our role in it, not just some abstract understanding of Revelation. What is our role in Revelation? Okay. And secondly, and secondly the application would be in church and state, how do we respond in a world where the world is secular, humanist, uh, against the ways of God and Christ? And how do we respond as Christians? And I would argue that the illustration from um, Daniel is, how can you find a better answer? Did he, when he was challenged with things, did he sit around and write treatises? No, he, 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 he responded. He participated in church and state. It was a question of the men's... Uh, working yesterday, somebody brought up the issue of the Anabaptist, and uh, that's an important issue. I'm not going to get lost in that, but in general, there was a group of people from the uh, early Reformation who really took a, a different view on church to state. They believed that you shouldn't participate in church to state. You shouldn't fight in wars. You shouldn't, you shouldn't even vote in many of them. It depends on the extreme nature of the thing, and you should live a life as, as isolate yourself from this world. It's an isolationist viewpoint. I don't believe that's the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition follows the Daniel approach where, where God uses Christians to influence nations and transform the world. <clears throat> Daniel was not fearful to speak to kings. He was not fearful to uh, practice his faith. He was not fearful to continue to pray to God. Uh, if you want to find an application of how do you apply Romans 13, read Daniel, Okay. It's the same thing. So, so to me, I, that's the reason we spend a lot of time in Daniel. That's the main emphasis. And, and anything I'm adding to that is merely commentary, okay? It's the, I've already covered everything that's important, okay? Uh, but, but I want to give you a little bit broader context in this. And again, the three lessons we're going to do today, we're going to go through this, what, what I learned in my own journey going through writing this book, Covenant of Grace, uh, uh, Covenant Heritage. And, and I want to share some of the lessons learned there and give you a little bit broader context and then the next week, we're going to go through and look at the history of this topic of st church-state relation. And then the last lesson, we're going to uh, do some additional applications. And then I'll be through for my series this, this, this year. Uh, the, the important point here in this relationship of church and state, and I think it's true when you summarize Daniel, Daniel's message was that Christ is coming, and in Christ you'll find an eternal righteousness, an eternal life, and an eternal kingdom. All three things. And all three of those things are important uh, to both of those topics that, that I talked about here. So let me, let me dive into this book here uh, and give you sort of a, a background summary uh, of, of this book and, and you know, my lesson. First of all, I want to say this book was born in this church. The illustrations are from guess who? 
Brenda. Brenda, okay. All right, and Linda, okay. They do the illustrations in the book. There's a picture of the covenant flag. I don't know if any of you remember a guy named Bill Reed, but Bill Reed was a member of this church at one time. He's, he went to Clemson, professor at Clemson now, I, I think. I'm not sure he kept that with him in years. Electrical engineer. But he, he did the flag, okay. The, although, although when I, I started writing this book, reading a book called Jock Purvis, Fair Sunshine, it kind of got my interest in this. And the more I got into it, the more I just couldn't stop finding books. As, as John Knox said in the Protestant Reformation, Men reigned from heaven. I pray for that day. I pray for the day when we can say, men, how do you explain a church going from zero to a thousand churches in a matter of a decade? Men reign from heaven. That can happen again. I pray for it. I believe it's going to happen again. I believe that God only by, only by looking to God for grace will it happen. And to me, I find this illustration here in the Protestant, particularly the second phase of the Protestant Reformation, which is embodied in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then the application of that was in the lives of the Puritans. Did you know that when the King Charles, after the Confession of Faith, that King Charles was brought back into power in the second, and uh, in 1661-62, and he basically uh, removed from practicing preaching a thousand ministers in England and 300 in Scotland. Basically, the Reformed Preachers, or, or you know, the, the, the true covenantal reform preachers were all swept from office. Boy, can you imagine John Bunyan in England no longer able to preach? You know, can you imagine David Dixon no longer able to preach? Okay, uh, that's what happened in England. And you can see the sad state. No longer could a Christian, no longer could a reformed Christian of the covenanter stamp or of the Scottish variety or of the true Puritan variety go to Cambridge or Oxford. They were forbidden. You have to, you have to, you, to go to Cambridge and Oxford, the, the, uh, you had to be an Anglican in your belief at that point in time. There was severe persecution. This went over into Ireland. In Ireland, whereas in Scotland they had a settlement where the Presbyterian religion was accepted as the principle. In England it was Anglican, and in Ireland it was Anglican. A lot of our Scotch, at least some of you are Scotch-Irish, I am. A lot of our ancestors went to Ireland and then to America to came, come here. Uh, they were there because in Ireland, because they were Presbyterian and not Anglican, and that was not the religion of the day, they could not receive a higher education. They could not uh, work in public service. Okay? Guess what? Those are the same things that happened to Christians before Constantine came to power in around 380. So it's the, same, it's the same cycle of persecution. This cycle of persecution continues until Christians are severely uh, kept and restricted from even earning a living. Okay, that will come, in my opinion. It's happened before and it'll happen again. Uh, and we need to be prepared for that. And so, so anyway, I, I start with this book being a product business, not just from the people I mentioned, but as we, over the years, some of you can remember our struggles with pastors and issues and whether a pastor sins and whether, how do you respond to that. Okay, those questions trouble me deeply. Okay. And, and as, I, as I struggled with those questions, I tried to find what I could lessons learn from uh, the treatises and other things that are there. So anyway, this is this picture here on page one. I'm sorry for the staples on some of your things. I ran out of small staples, so my apology. I got some ugly-looking staples on some of your copies. My, my printer is a little squirrely. When it gets a little hot, it starts rolling over things, so my apology there too. But most of you have a good copy. But this book was written around 2000, 
and uh, it was it sort of summarized the lessons learned from my exploration into trying to answer questions to these topics. There was also at the time, most of you probably don't remember, they're still there. There was a group in Canada, and particularly in the northern United States, which were predominantly Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America. I have nothing against them. Matter of fact, they came from the covenant and tradition. But they followed in this, after, after this Reformation, after, after for 28 years, King Charles you know, basically held back Presbyterianism and, and the true Reformed faith in many ways. Uh, after that was over, there were, the, the, Scotland was again allowed to be a Presbyterian government, a Presbyterian church. Uh, and, and, and as a result, but, but these people who suffered during the persecution could not see their way clear to forgiving ministers. Who had, who had defected during that period of time. Most ministers had. Only a very few, hang on, there were only three faithful covenanting ministers left at, at when, when the covenanting, when, 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 when the, uh, William and Mary came back for the Glorious Revolution in 1688, and Presbyterian was it. Only three were left with the people out in the fields doing covenanters. All three of them recommended that the people join the Church of Scotland. And to do so, they recognized that the Church of Scotland was not perfect in, in doctrine. It was not perfect in its understanding of the church to state relationship. There's something called a solemn league and covenant where they swore, and this is where it gets into church to state. You have, you have the extreme view in America where there is church and the state. And then in, in the context for the, this book here, you have the other extreme where, where England and Scotland swore something called the solemn league and covenant where the states of England and Scotland were committed to the reform religion. They were committed to exterminating any deviation and error from that. They were committed to having a Christian government. They were committed to having a... a, a they thought these things could exist together. That, believe it or not, is the framework for our Westminster Assembly. Maybe most of you don't know it or not, but almost all but a very handful of the people at the Westminster Divine, the people from England and Scotland who wrote our confession, swore the Solemn League and Covenant. They were committed to a united church and state. Another principal lesson is, can you imagine one church in the land? You might say, well, that's, that's not right. We need to have all these different churches where people can choose to do this and that. And there's an argument for that. But the other thing I found here was here was a nation in Scotland and England where there was one church predominantly. And in Scotland, there was one church. Now, it, it started to defect, and, and I can get into the story. That was not my main point today. But the point I'm getting to is, and here was also a time. I, I'm, I'm an engineer. I look for boundary conditions. We have a boundary condition today where, where secular humanism is the framework of all of our thinking. We're born in it. We're steeped in it. We live in it. We breathe it. We watch TV in it. We read books in it. it it's what we understand. It's anti-Christian in many ways. Yet here was a world where the Word of God was believed to be true, where they believed that, that a church and state could get along, that you could have, a, that you could have a, a, a religious, organized kingdom of Christ, you know, have those evidence within You know, that was the other extreme. I call that a boundary condition. We live somewhere in this space between them. And, but to me, I think it's important, as an engineer, I can't solve every little, every little possible combination of all of these things that happen in the, in the space between boundary conditions. But to solve complex problems, you need to understand these boundary conditions. What does it look like in a world 
where everything's psychohumanist. I don't need to tell you about that. Just look around you. What does it look like in a world where people believe that the Word of God is true, really true, really, really, really true, and believe that there is, there is a way that the church and state can get along, and it is, there is a reason to have godly leaders in civil authority. Wow, what a radical idea, okay? That's what captured my imagination as I got into looking at the Scottish Covenants. Well, let me start back at place. You know, I remember Lee one time talking to me about Southerners who meet each other, you know. Who are your people? Okay, I remember you telling me that discussion. When you get together, you want to know somebody. Who are your people? What's your place? Where are you from? Okay. Well, these things of place and people are important to understand. Now, first of all, that's being wiped out by secular humanism. We're, we're wanting to, we're, we want, you know, what stands in the way between tyranny and, and where we at freedom are these institutions, these practices, the place, people. Okay, who are we? Where do we come from? What's our history? Okay, these things are important. So anyway, I want to, what, what captured my imagination is, I started going to, I spent weekends at Emory University and going to Duke and find, find anything I can. I rode off to the British Library and, 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 the, and the Library of Scotland to try to get copies of these books. Most of these books that describe what happened during this era cannot be found in America. The minutes of the, of the, of the meetings of the Presbyterians out in the fields are not found in any seminary library in, in America, nor in any conventional library. James Nisbet's memoirs, who describe how a little boy lived, lived through these 28 years, are not found in any library in America. As a matter of fact, I went to the, the, the Presbyterian Library in Clinton, and I tried to find a copy of some, a book called Scott Worthies, which was the third, when the, when the, when the pioneers, the Scotch-Irish pioneers came to South Carolina up country. They, it's written that they typically only, they only could carry so many books. They had three books they primarily carried. One of them was the Bible, one of them was Pilgrim Progress, and one of them was Scott Worthies. Well, they talked about the persecution of Presbyterians during this time period. That's not even in the Presbyterian line. So we've lost this heritage. We don't understand it. Further, as I got into this and I read copies of the Westminster Divines and the Scottish Theologians, where am I going to find a copy of that book? I can go to Greenville and not find any of those books. Okay, they're not there. We, we have replaced this in our seminaries by secondhand authorities. Not that they're not good, but Dadney and others, they're secondhand authorities. They're writing up a summary of what's going on here. The only way we're going to, my mind, the only way we're going to get this story straight is to go back to the primary sources. Who, what was our confession? What was the context that our confession was written in? And how do we understand that? And, and, and if we understand that, we can keep it pure and straight, okay? We have to understand it. And this is, this is why I wrote this book, okay? I'm trying to explain to you a complex story. The main sources are very fortunate. This, this James Nisbet, probably not a direct ancestor, but certainly the family name, my middle name, okay? At least started a starting place of interest. I read the testimony of, uh, and, and found a copy. It's not in America. I had to write off to the British Library to get a copy of it. But he left a memoir of what happened during 28 years of persecution as a Christian in Scotland. And it was wonderful. And you know what mostly that book's comprised of? Praise, prayer. Praise, prayer. Praise, prayer. My mama's dead. Praise, but she died in barn with, her, with, my, with my sister because they were no longer able to live in their own house because the state threw them out because they were Christians and Presbyterians. 
Prayer, praise, prayer, praise. I would say 80% of that book is prayer and praise, okay? Now, I had to kind of neuter it back a little bit to get it to fit in the context of the book I was writing, but I used that as the primary framework of what it's like to live in this severe period of persecution. What is it really like? We're not there yet. We're close. But what is it like? Okay? What it's like is having your mother and your sister die in a barn from a fever because they can't live in their house anymore. What it's like is having your father go up and suffer and be executed in, in, in Edinburgh, right underneath the castle wall. Okay, but then the, the framework of the state being destroyed is good. What it's like, it, over and over again, about two women who were, who were um, one of the older women was taken out to the sea and she was anchored down with stakes so that when the tide came in, she would drown. And she was there and she was struggling. Of course, somebody's going to drown and they're going to struggle. And, 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 the, and the state authorities asked the second one who's going to suffer that same fate. What do you see out there? You know, are you going to suffer the same thing? They were really torturing her. They were really showing her, this is going to happen to you, okay? Don't you want to, don't you want to recant? Don't you want to, don't you want to get on with the program? Don't you want to be one of us, okay? He says, no, what, you know what I see out there? I see Christ wrestling, okay? I see Christ wrestling in those waves. That's what she saw. When another lady in Scotland was taken into prison, uh, Marion Harvey, when she was taken into prison, and one of the ministers who had defected uh, had come in to try to convince her that she was all wrong. This church, you've got this whole thing about church and state wrong, lady. You know, the church and state, you know, the, the, whatever. The king can do whatever he wants. You know, he's in charge, etc. And he asked her simple, what is the church? She says, I don't know, but I know one thing. I know these faithful people who are dying for Christ are the church. I know that. Okay, that's what it means. Those are the lessons we'll learn. Do we have to have this period of persecution to learn? I don't think so. Okay, main points. The second thing in this book that I found was I worked on this for five years. The last year, I was in the library at Emory University, and I was about to walk out the door. I've been trying to find, I'd heard, seen a reference to John Nevey, who had written 52 sermons on the covenant of grace. He was the minister in this little town, and, and I couldn't find him anywhere. And all of a sudden, I just looked up on the shelf, and there was something called a wing collection. Then these microfilm copies, there are wings where they add supplemental material over time. And in a wing collection, I found them. So here are 52 sermons. Okay. Anyway, back to the point. You see this little picture here on the front of the book, a little picture here on the page. If you were flying over New Mill, Scotland, and you look down, you would see an image of the church. Have you seen these you know, alien programs on TV where you see these things on the earth, you know, that would fly over? You know, they mean something. Well, anyway, if you flew over this part of Scotland, what you would see was the outline of the church made by the walls of Lord Lowndes Castle and Framework and Hamley, who was a chief leader at that time. That's what you see is church. Okay, why was it there? You have to go, okay, I'll come back to that in a minute, but, but, but I'll get into that. But anyway, let me go back to a couple of other things. The other thing that goes into this, I'll, I'm going to answer that question in just a minute. Bear with me, just trying to leave it here. That the other thing that went into this book, as I struggle with these questions, what's the relationship with church and state? When are you able to do this? When are you able to allow yourself to confess something perhaps as untrue in order to save your life and others? Okay, a typical uh, story we know very well from World War II, etc. Okay. Uh, anyway, th those issues are dealt with in multiple treatises. James Durham, uh, Alexander Shields, 
etc. That, that deal with how do you do all of, how do you respond appropriately in these environments, okay? Many of them will cover uh, a little bit of some of this in the, in the next couple of lessons. But I wanted to make sure you understand that's an important part of this. I was trying to answer questions as I got into this, I noticed a Christianity that was so different from what I know today. A Christianity that believed the Word of God was true, really, really, really true. They loved their brothers. They really, really, really loved their brothers. They were willing to die for Christ. They really were willing to die for Christ. Okay, What's so different about that? They were, they, they, they were willing, and if you think about it, this is really not a severe argument. All the king of England wanted, he wanted them to be Anglicans. Just go to an Anglican church. That's all you got to do. Just use the common book of prayer okay, for your worship. That's all you got to do. That's all I'm asking. Have a bishop rather than an elder. That's all I'm asking you. Well, are you willing to die for those things? They were. I'm not trying to say that, 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 that those distinctions, I'm just using that as an illustration of the things you believe, you believe so intensely that you're willing to die for them. That's what, that's what, as I read these stories, I couldn't get enough, okay? Books, rather than men writing on me, I had books writing on me. And as I went through and found about, about this stuff here. Believe it or not, you can find out more about the 1800s, the 1600s, and 1700s in a library, if you know what you're doing, than a modern book. Most modern books, are they die and thrown away. They microfilmed and copied all these earlier books. So if you want to really get into any point in history, you can do that very thoroughly. My main lesson I got out of this was Psalm 72, 18. This is my life motto. God only does wondrous things. No matter what it is, no matter how bad it is, when, you, when, it, when we get to heaven, we'll be able to say, God, what you did was wondrous. It makes sense to us. God only does wondrous things. That's my motto, and I'm sticking with it. Book outline. I mean, it goes through this historical period of persecution, the Nevi sermons on the covenant of grace, so there's theology here. What is that covenant of grace? The application of the lessons of Christians. That's really what, what this book is about. Next page. I want to dive in a little bit in place. People and place. Now, I'm people. You're going to, if you ask me the question, who, who are you from? Okay, well, I don't know all the people I'm from, but I know these people I'm from. In this little town in Scotland, if you go over to the east a few miles and go down one mile, there's a little hill called Hart Hill where a man back in 1517, a little bit before 15, so actually about 1520 thereabouts, somewhere in that time, so about the same time the Reformation was taking place in England, he was writing, he was taking John, he was taking John Wycliffe's, Wycliffe's, I guess more properly said, I'm, I'm from a little town called Van White, and when I see a Y, I U Y, okay, but actually it's Wycliffe, so help me, help me out here, I'm, I'm a habit of my creation, Wycliffe, excuse me. His Bible, was, was here. In Scotland, this is just one illustration. If you go to places in Scotland where they found a copy of Wycliffe's Bible early in that early 1500s, you'll see the same thing. You'll see a history-long impact of that Bible in that land. You'll see many people in that area who were, for some reason, are committed to Jesus Christ and are willing to die for their faith because that's the New Testament written in, in a common vernacular language. Well, anyway, I didn't know this at the time, but I knew about John the Hardhill, and, and he wrote that by, actually wrote it in, in, in hand, actually copied out of it at the British Library, uh, in his own handwriting, where he wrote, the, he translated into Gaelic. Okay, Gaelic is quite different than, if you've heard somebody speak in, in Gaelic, you wouldn't understand a word they said, even though a lot of the words are the same, just the pronunciation, the emphasis is so different. 
So anyway, he wrote, the, he translated into Gaelic at that time, Murdoch Bisbet. I didn't know this when I wrote this book. I didn't know this until a couple of years ago when I got my DNA results back on, on the male line. But the more, the more name, the particular more name, there, there is, a, there is, a, there is a, a practice where you can go through and look at your close relatives in DNA, and there are names like, like uh, Alexander. Am I related to Alexander's? Am I related to Pollard's? Am I related to uh, Montgomery's? Well, well, we had some Montgomery's in this church a while back. Well, anyway, in Scotland, what they do is they look at these close relative clusters, and they can tell you within five miles, they claim, where your family origin started. Because back in the, in the 1100s, surnames, or people back before that didn't use surnames, but around 1100, around the Norman Conquest in that era, people began to use surnames like Willing or Moore, whatever that may be. And, and, and these surnames are traceable to clusters. What they mean is that this cluster of people that had this genetics, you know, maybe one of them was in, the, was in the Montgomery clan, and maybe one of them was in the Moore clan, okay? So the clan name eventually, I mean, but the fundamental genetics were predominantly one area, and that happened to be Moore and Moore, okay? I didn't know this at the time, but Elizabeth Moore, Muir, uh, was the wife of Robert, first king of Scotland. So I don't have any male Stuart blood in me, but the female side, yeah, okay, all right, a little bit, all right. Well, anyway, these people came from a little area. If you go, go up five miles and go over two miles, you see Rowallan Castle and, 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 um, and uh, another castle up there, Pokelly. Both of these castles were the Moor thing. If you drew a map of Scotland where the clans were, this was the Moor clan area, okay? The Nisbets were like little outsiders, okay? They were like low-life people there, okay? And, and anyway, this Moore clan, all right, uh, from this Moore clan, there was, there, you know, so, so my point really is God uses, I, I, I truly believe this, we are not random accidents. God uses every person in our history to make us who we are for purposes that he is determined to do. I'll prove it right here. I didn't know I was going to write this book on the covenant. Yet I go back and look at it, and God is working back here several hundred years ago, working to make me, okay, whatever. I'm not trying to break, not my point. My point is God works with people. He works with who you are, and the places are important. Well, anyway, uh, my point was I was utterly amazed that the two lines, Edwin Nisbet Moore, the names that make my, my, my heritage are both from this area, so that, that I didn't know that when I wrote the book, okay? I'll just add that as a aside, call it a personal privilege, whatever the case may be. But let me tell you a little bit more about this era. On the right-hand side, about 100 years before this persecution I wrote about, there was a, a lady wrote a book called The Lollards of Kyle, where she went and investigated uh, several dozen people who got into trouble with the king. Luckily, they, they lived through it for being early reformers. They believed in things like the Pope... Uh, isn't the sole authority on the Word of God. Many, many fundamental of, of beliefs that you got out of reading the life of the Bible. I mean, that's, what, that's really where, where they came from. Well, anyway, they were persecuted during this area. She left a map of where these people were. and those little, You can't see it very well, but those little places on the map are where she found these people. And 80% of those places are right in this little map right here I'm showing you. So my point really is that a Wycliffe Bible, and I think I could go to other, if I were willing to research, I could go to other places in Scotland and prove the same thing, that wherever a Wycliffe Bible went, that it severely impacted the people at the time in a positive way. It's the point on one way.
The other point during this era, you know, I believe that God shines out his grace in particular persons, people, and places at various times in history. I believe that. All right. I go back and look at this era right here. Has anybody ever, ever looked at David Dixon's book on Psalms? Okay. He lived about five miles to the left over here. There's another book I meant to bring in here, William Guthrie's of Christian's Great Interest. I don't know whether you can remember, but Jim Hope went through that book with us in men's breakfast here about a lifetime ago, okay? But, but, it's, but it's a great book. That what is our interest? What really is our interest, okay? That a number of great Christian writings arose from this era, this area, okay? Another thing here, Covenanters. This little hill on the right-hand side on, on the bottom is Loudon Hill. Back during the uh, era of Robert the Bruce, he first defeated the English on top of this hill, and a few years later defeated them near Stirling Castle, okay, finally, and, and retained, obtained independence for Scotland. Okay, so, so in any event, that's a, that's a, that's a, this little area is greatly steeped in history. If you were to look up here, I, when I thought about this, how do people hide during 20 years of persecution? I was thinking when I wrote this book, I'd never been to Scotland. Well, they hide in the woods, of course. Well, I get there and I, on top of this hill where, where the Nisbet place was, and I could look over all the way to the Irish Sea. And there may have been a couple of trees, okay, between here and there, but it was largely pastures and rolling hills. How do you hide for 28 years in an area like that? I, it just amazes me that people could live through that, but they did. Okay, so much for that. Next point. I, I, I'm just going to capture a few elements here, and I don't have time to read them all in, in the time I've got, which is quickly evaporating from me here. But let me just give you a couple of samples, a few samples here. Nevi's 52 Covenants of Grace. I tried to summarize those in the book. He wrote, a, a, he wrote a, a, every sermon he wrote was about the covenant of grace. It was centered on, on 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, 5. That was his key verse about how David realize that God, even though it's not so with me, you know, you've used me and brought me into an eternal covenant, which is a summary of the covenant of grace. That was really what led Debbie to write. And he wrote 52 sermons. Now, in those days, a sermon was a little, you know, a lot of times you have people who preach a chapter on the Bible. That's okay. All right. But in that day, there were a lot of people and, and a lot of the Puritans taught on a subject to where they integrated all of Scripture together and they tried to make us, what is faith? What is hope? What is love? That's what Navy did. You can argue whether that's right or wrong, but that's, that's what he and many other Puritans did. And on faith here, you look at this, you look at faith, and you know, if you, if you want to read some other good sermons on this, look at Andrew Gray's works. He, if, you want to, if you really want to read a good book, read about Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford, I know some of those, don't we? Andrew Gray, all right. <laughs> Uh, you know, and they believe that faith is a condition of the covenant or promises. That was really that was really a thing. They kept saying it over and over again. Well, I'll tell you what. If you went to most reform circles today and you said faith is a condition of the covenant of grace, they'd throw you out of the room. Because, because in modern reform theology, we've tried to wrench man out of it. Oh, it's all God. It's all God. Yes, it's all God. But we've tried to simplify it. The man doesn't even have a place in it. The, a, lot of, a lot of the structure on having a covenant of grace, a covenant of redemption, you know, and having a, 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 a chemical structure in the covenant of grace was, okay, this is God up here, and this is man down here, and then Christ is in the middle, and that's a good point trying to bring that together, and I'm not going to say that's wrong, 
But nevertheless, most of these people believed in one covenant of grace. That there's one message in Scripture, covenant of grace, beginning to end. There's one covenant. Always has been one covenant. Old Testament, new covenant. And in it, Christ is a mediator. He is our surety. Yes, God, our Father, was the one that made the covenant. But it is through Christ. And only with union with Christ can we... He is our surety, our representative. That is the right way to try to understand it rather than to... So I got this covenant of redemption. Yes, it's all true. God, before all time, yes, it's all true. But, but to me, they understood this better than modern theologians do. They saw the fact that what does it mean to be saved? It isn't just forensic justification, Christ died for me. It is, I'm in Christ's kingdom. Christ is bringing about a work in my family, and there's a covenantal link that's going to go on for generation after generation that there's a connection. That's what, also what it means to be saved. There's also that God saved us for good works that He ordained from the beginning of the world that we're to do. Okay, so, so it's not this, oh, works are bad. Grace is good. It's all grace. Now, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I don't, I, my point is, I believe we ought to believe all those furiously. Okay? I ought to believe that we are saved solely by grace. Furiously. Absolutely. I'm not saying anything to contradict that. All I'm saying is we're also saved to be in Christ's kingdom. We're also saved for works He created from the beginning of time. I think that idea is kind of preached and held in our church. Not many, not many churches you'll find that idea there where, you, where, you, where you've got a multifaceted Christianity. And to me, only a multifaceted Christianity is going to survive what's coming. All right. So anyway, you read these sermons of grace. I've just taken this. The Navy offers six proofs that the covenant of grace is conditional. The Lord did never promise life absolutely to any creature, even those that sound absolute have both Christ and faith included. So his emphasis is not it's conditional on us, but it's conditional on us being in union with Christ, and Christ is the condition. I, I want you to understand that, okay? But, but since Christ is the condition, it's both God and man, there's some sense in which we're connected there. We're not thrown out and cast out as if we have no place in this. Our place is with Christ. So it's an important doctrinal emphasis that I daily didn't get reading. I went to a seminary and I read all these books on covenant theology and I didn't get that idea. Okay. There was it was a covenant of grace was something sovereignly administered by blood. Well, where's where's the other part in here? You read the Puritans, you read Robert Rollick, you read the people that founded the religion, the religion doctrine in England, Scotland, and in Cotton. Over and over again they talk about the covenant being what is a covenant? A covenant is between two parties. <laughs> Okay, and so anyway, I'm just trying to emphasize the difference of emphasis. It, in some ways, is a radical to some reformed, super hyper reformed people. It's heretical. Forgive me. Okay, it started in Scotland. I don't get lost in this. Too, but it's Thomas Boston and the Mara controversy in Scotland. I don't have time to get into that. I may touch on it later someday. But in that controversy, they were trying to. It was trying to make things antinomian. But now we put it in perspective. Remember I told you that the Reformed ministers were no longer able to preach. Well, you had, you had the Anglican ministers coming in with more of a human religion that required more of man's involvement in it. So anyway, I'm saying to you, I sound like I've talked out both sides of my mouth or not. I'm talking about where you try to merge them together, okay? That's wrong. Where you keep all ideas distinct. There is a kingdom. We're required to do works. We're saved only by grace. Those three ideas I'm keeping distinct. I'm not trying to marry them together some form of homogenization of them. But, but what was happening was religion was becoming sterile. 
most if you follow if you say if you one of the reasons I, I object to people uh, overemphasizing some of the Baxterism and other things, which Baxter was fine, but that was post he was he, he was a, he was in the covenant. That's true covenant, but he wasn't truly a Scottish covenant. But anyway, my point is that that represented the English theology at the time, and it became more and more. If you read Baxter's works, you'll find a lot of things that are that try to merge this stuff together. Okay, that are struggling with this issue of how do I combine these ideas together. Okay, Baxter sometimes goes off the wagon there, okay? But anyway, that's true of everything in England. After they removed these 1,000 ministers, and, and, and the ministers that came after them were not as good. But the problem you get into is that our theology today is, is a discontinuity. That, that divide where you have the real true theologians that believe the Westminster Confession, and then the ones that survived and were infected by this, what I'll call this, Medium idea, okay. I'll I, I get into it another day and another dollar. But uh, that 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 was and Thomas Boston greatly claimed in Scotland. I mean, if I said something bad about Thomas Thomas Boston, they'd throw me out of the room in Scotland. Okay, he was the greatest minister, one of the greatest they ever had. But he kind of leaned a little bit in that antinomian direction against the law. Okay, and, and so that pattern and practice is carried over to today. So again, that's another sword that I struggle with. But I'll pass it on to anyway. Second point. The very name and nature of the covenant does signify an agreement upon conditions. Scripture promises the covenant on condition of obedience to commandments. So he doesn't have any problem with saying that, that, that obedience is required of us. He's not saying that it earns our salvation. He's simply saying it's required of us. Now, what, where does he get that? Duh, the Bible has that. Okay, that's where he gets that. Okay, it speaks of both being required. When Scripture refers to keeping or breaking the covenant, it means the conditions of the covenant. The word covenant not only means that which God promised, but that which God requires. God requires one's assent to the terms of the covenant. I, there's a point where you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That, that, that's when you formally enter the covenant. Okay, other experiences here. I don't have time to get into all of these. I, I could probably, I'll probably sometime in the future do a more in-depth lesson there, but it's not my point today. I'll just take a couple of them. Preaching. This is what preaching was like in the covenanter's field. After this, I I went 16 miles to some of the good people who hear a sermon preached by the great Mr. James Renner, one of the three ministers left with the Covenanters, a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, who was a young man endued with great piety, prudence, and moderation. The meeting was held in a very large, desolate moor, and the ministry lecture was on 2 Chronicles 19, from which he raised a sad, applicatory regret that the rulers of our day were as great enemies to religion as those that were in the day's friend to it. And true today as well. He preached from Mark 12, 34 in the forenoon. After explaining the words, he gave 13 marks of the hypocrite back with pertinent and suitable application. In the afternoon, this is three sermons, by the way, okay. In the afternoon, he gave 10 marks of a sound believer back with a large, full, and free offer of Christ of all sorts of perishing sinners would come and accept him for their Lord and Savior and for their Lord and lawgiver. His method was both plain and well digested, suiting the substance and the simplicity of the gospel. This was a great day of the Son of Man, as many serious souls who have got a pigskin view of the Prince of Life and the pleasure, pleasant land that, uh, that lies beyond the banks of Jordan. Okay. 
that's what his whole book was about. Can you, can you imagine how excited I was to read that book? I mean, prayer, praise, emphasis of life. What were you experiencing? What led these people to die, die for Jesus Christ? It was great preaching. It was great word preaching. They weren't dude in it. John Neve, their minister, by the way, John Neve was the minister of this little town. This little town right there, that's where, that's where his church was. It was right where that little church is right there, a little right beside it. Okay, 52 sermons. If you go back, an example of the life, and, and I try to go through and I looked at Scott Worthy's and Jock Purvis's book on the Covenanters and the suffering, and there are a couple of other books, Cloud of Witnesses, uh, these books document this. Anyway, this is not the James Nisbet that left him. We're not the James Nisbet. He was, he was executed on, 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 the, on, the, on, on the scaffold for his being Presbyterian. He, he uh, 1684, judges offered him uh, to go free if he would acknowledge the king's headship over his, All he had to do, all he had to do, when they boiled it down, well, yeah, maybe you can't be in, I mean, but okay, don't worry about this angle thing. But do you acknowledge the king is head of the church? He said, there's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. There is not. The king is not head of the church. Okay. Now, I know that, you know, that's, that's a very important point. That's what they died for. So, you, you know, a lot of people mangle this, what did they die for, etc. But, but his main point was, he said, self-preservation must stoop to truth preservation. He had a choice between truth preservation and self-preservation. And he said, well, self-preservation must stoop to truth preservation. Okay, uh, just the illustrations. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Alexander Shields and then these treatises, okay? When he, he struggled with the divisions that were happening in the church, as these people were going through intense persecution, it brought about more subdivisions and they were breaking apart and they were struggling and each other's faces about, well, do you pay taxes or do you do this? Let me ask you this. Did Daniel ask the question about do I pay taxes? Did Daniel ask the question what about these sacrificial things from the church that are being used by pagans? I'm going to write a treatise about that. They shouldn't be using these things. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create, I'm going to have a, have everybody, all of us, all of us called pseudo-Christians in, in, in the early sense. So we're going to have, we're going, we're going to stage a demonstration where we're going to, we're going to show, we're going to try to tell the king how wrong he is in using these temple things of the temple of God. No. He focused on one thing, being a Christian. Not, not, I, I really mean that. He was a Christian just as we are in the broadest sense. The hardest thing in the world to do is to be a Christian. That is the hardest thing in the world to do. It requires that you understand, that you read Romans 13, that you understand your place. It's not just, it's not just a Christian in the church. One thing is being a Christian here. How do you be a Christian in the state? Well, that's a, how do you do a Christian through persecution? That's another thing altogether. Well, anyway, my point was Alexander Shields left treatises on how to deal with this topic. And really, he was not an original writer. He went back and read James Durham. He read some of the earlier reformers. He summarized all of that. Uh, James Buchanan, who was a, a tutor to King James II, who wrote a, a book on resistance. Okay, he, he, he summarized all of these things into a book. But what he mainly was worried about was his principal enemy was not how do we behave outside, how do we behave inside. That was his principal struggle. There's also a book by James Durham on how to behave with scandal in the church. Okay? And we went through this. How do you behave in scandal? What happens if a minister sins? Okay? Do you still listen to it? Is the ministry, is the preaching of the word dependent upon the purity of the minister? Well, I don't know about you guys, but we'd be in real trouble. Okay? All right, if that, if that depends. This is a point of argument. And, and, and but this real point was 
Don't worry about all that. The hardest thing you've got to do is be a Christian. And what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to love your brother. If there were more love, there would be more union and communion, notwithstanding the differences. Reconciliation, agreement, and receiving one another is much pressed and inculcated in Scripture. And if this reconciliation cannot be obtained any other way, there must be mutual forgiveness. In other words, even if we don't agree, we have to have, to have mutual forgiveness. We, we mean they don't have to fully confess. There has to be mutual forgiveness. We're, we're not going to get that perfection on this earth. Even as Christ forgave us, so also we should do. In many cases, then, the way to endeavor the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is with lowliness and meekness and long-suffering to forbear one another. Again, all he's saying is what Scripture says, but it sounds so good, okay? The study and seeking and pursuing and, and entertaining peace and peacefulness is much pressed and praised. The want of peacefulness as well as the want of truth will make our salt to lose its savor. Those are his three principal tenets that he worked on. Later on, he and Durham both mentioned what, what did Christ preach principally about? What did he preach about? Well, if you read what is lowliness, repentance, Sermon on the Mount, that attitude of heart, that's what he preached principally about. Okay. Uh, so so we, we need to have that dude into our very wolf and we being. Okay. Okay. Time is not my friend. Lesson for the Covenanters. Okay, I'm not going to go through the book today, but we'll go into this. We've touched on it at various times, but these are sort of an outline of Neve's sermons. I've summarized them, and again, uh, I've, I've captured them in the book. But, but again, these are the sermons that people heard that were willing to then go out and die. On the front page, I list, on the, on the very first page, I list, on the, the second page at the bottom, I list people in this area who were executed for their religious beliefs during that era, okay? But anyway, they were willing to do that. And then lessons for citizens, and then a reformation, what are our covenant obligations? I'm not going to get to hold that today, I'm just saying that's what's there. And also, when you go into Shields, there's another shield. Alexander Shield wrote treatises, Michael Shields, his brother, left, um, left what was called the minutes of faithful contending of the Church of Scotland, faithful contendings where he outlines how the people in the fields met on periodic times of society meetings and how they, how, and, and what their meetings were like to try to endure suffering during this period of time. Neither one of those books, by the way, is found in Modern Theology Seminary. Neither one of them is found in any book library in America. Okay? I'm going to go down a real tangent here. Alexander Shields, period's of story. Scotland is not England. Okay. Scotland has been poor okay, compared to England. Scotland didn't have a thing. Like, England had trade. They had ships going around the world, and they were making all kind of money, and they had laws that suppressed Scotland and trade. So Scotland, Scotland after, after this persecution was over, and we even a little bit of time after that, Queen Anne, the, the, the Scottish, Scotland said, we're going to turn that around. We're going we're gonna to develop trade. But just as Scott, I'm a Scotch-Irish, I'm Scots, and you know, Scots are just so hard-headed people like me, okay? They get their mind made up on something, they get fixed on it, and God bless them, okay? And staying out of the way, all right? And they took all their national treasury and they bought ships and supplied things. They were going to go to America and establish a route across the Panama Canal, which isn't there, it was the Swiss with the Panama, a place called Darien, a little island out there. And they sent a ship with the ministers, okay? And they started a ship, okay? And if you want to read a good book, read about the Darien adventure. Read about how Alexander Shields and others, you know, tried to do this adventure. Guess what happened to them? on this little island. They got these little things down there called mosquitoes. 
Okay. These mosquitoes have something called yellow fever. Okay. They got wiped out left and right. Okay. The, they went, they ultimately said, okay, we're dying here. We can't do much, but there's a Spanish fort over here. We're going to conquer it. Okay. Good luck. Okay. Oh, they didn't do that. And, and as they were, <laughs> when they finally were defeated and thrown off of Marion, guess what they had to witness? Their Protestant church being occupied by the Spaniard Catholics holding mass. That's the final scene they witnessed at the end of all this. So I, I'm not here to extol Scots or Scottish. They're who they are. They're people. They're place. Okay? And everyone's different. All right, so much for that. My point is we're there. Okay, let me go through this in the time I got. I don't, I, I'm just going to touch on it, probably pick it up next week, and again in a second. If you read Turretin, Turretin was a reformer on the continents uh, who wrote a, a great treatise, great books, great three-volume commentary. And in this, this idea, you know, sometimes you read a book and you only get one idea out of it, but this idea was very influential to me, that, that, that there is a sense in which there is no condition of the covenant of grace. When you view it from the first relation, the sanction of Christ, there's no condition. We're dependent solely on grace. Yet, there's a point in time when Scripture says, when we accept faith, that faith is required. We have to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. There's a uniting of faith. That, that's a required point of fellowship in the covenant. The third thing is their obedience through the means of grace as a condition of covenant. So Turretin mentioned all three of these things. I'll make a triangle out. I'm third and didn't. But my point is, this is what Christianity is. It isn't on one side. We have a deformed Christianity if we emphasize one of these more than the other. True Christianity emphasizes all three of these. And that's what, when you read the Puritans, that's what you'll find. Blessings of overcomers. I don't have time to get into this. I'll pick this up next week. But I do want to get enough to get my main point across. Blessings of overcomers. When I take Daniel, eternal life, eternal righteousness, eternal kingdom, and I lay that up with the work of the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father, and I lay that up with our confession of the, the conditions, no condition, obedience, faith, when I lay it up with the crisis, prophet, priest, king, when I lay it up with justification, sanctification, adoption. By the way, these are, notice how many threefold distinctions we have in our confession of understanding things after the Trinity and nature of God. Well, anyway, that's my understanding of all this. Justification is both forgiveness of sin and imputed righteousness. Adoption is, is truly technically adoption at a point in time. That's technically our confession. But there's also a perseverance required from that when we become, we become reborn in the image of Christ and become more and more like him in perseverance. Sanctification begins with repentance and faith and leads to sanctification. So, so there's a circle of, circle of activities here that take place. And to me true Christianity that you'll find when you read the Covenanters and the, and, the, and the Puritans emphasizes all of these things. I'll take that a step further on the next slide. That little, that little shaded area, is that, what is a Christian? I'm, I've reduced that triangle down a little bit smaller. What is a Christian? Okay, and, what is a, and, and the triangle outside of it is a Christian and a state. Okay, can a nation be a Christian? No. But can a nation be like a Christian? Can Christians exist in a nation? Yes. The issue is that Christianity is so well defined that if we, if we try to go too far out of that bound, if we go more towards in one direction, uh, we're, we're going to suffer and pray, okay? It, it, you know, and, and if you were to draw what a Christian in the broader sense is, or, or let's call it the visible church, okay, uh, there is, there is, there is uh, of that body of people outside of the spirit, and even within it, okay, there's suffering and prayer, there's suffering and love, there's suffering and uh, witness, okay? We're, we're here to suffer, 
because Christ is using, God is using us to bring about his purposes. So, so you can submit all these things. And what are the, rather than being faith, uh, no, could, could, the, the points on that triangle are the top is submission. That's all, that's all that required of us in Romans 13 to submit and to honor. Honor. We have to honor God. And we have to also obey Christ if it's contrary to word. Didn't, didn't, didn't the early uh, Christians in Jerusalem say we must obey God rather than men? Those are the three fundamentals of what it means to live in this world that kind of give us a context there. There's also the two kingdom theory of, 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 of church and state. Okay, I don't have time to develop it fully, but let me give you a taste of it. Turretin speaks of the rule of Christ as God with the Father and Holy Spirit. So when we try to, we're trying to reduce this to the mediatorial role of Christ or whatever, it's a triune God. We have to have a concept that, that gets around it. Turton did a very good job of, of doing that as well. There's another guy, George Gillespie in, in Aaron's Rod, wrote, speaks of a twofold kingdom of Jesus Christ. As he is eternal Son of God, reigning together with the Father and Holy Ghost over all things, and another is mediator and head of the church. So, in, so you have in one kingdom, Christ is a mediator and head of the church, specifically to the church. And in the other kingdom, the, the visible kingdom, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost all working out there. So if you're going to draw what it is to be a Christian in a, in a civil environment, you have to include the Holy Spirit. You have to include uh, the, the Father and the, and the Son. God's determined all of these things to give away. Right, time to plumb the depths of that. And I'm not trained in saying that the Holy Spirit is effectual unto salvation in every case, but believe me, the Holy Spirit works in men to prevent them from sin, to contain uh, things. There's a work of the Holy Spirit there that's, that's not very well spoken of. Okay. All right. Overcomers. What are the marks of people that do this? They're overcomers. If you read Revelation, why did I emphasize Revelation? Revelation to me is important in all of this, okay? To me, Revelation gives us our roadmap on how we are responding in this world. Gives us what the churches were like. And in this, who were those that overcome, that overcame? They, they, according to Revelation, there were three things, okay? And he said unto me, as I was done, I am the Alpha, the beginning of the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst, the fountain of water freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and will be his God, and he shall be my son. So there's that sense of what an overcomer is, that, that, we, that we ultimately go to Christ. We give it beginning and the end. Secondly, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome him. For he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and they are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Called, chosen, faithful. Threefold idea there. And they overcome him and the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, and they love their lives not unto death. And I've kind of got those organized here in my triangle. My point is that I'm talking about a Christianity which isn't necessarily something we see a lot today, which doctrinally, theologically, politically is so different to where these things are all one. There's the, yes, there's doctrine, but there's also Christ's kingdom that we're in and it's bringing about its purposes. I'll pick this up next week, and I'm going to use this book. Get this book at home. Read Psalm 72. I'm going to start with 20 blessings of being in God's covenant, of having a church and state that are ordered after God. Psalm 72, read it. If you've got this commentary, read this commentary on it. What are these 20 blessings? You know what we're missing today? We're missing half of these 20 blessings. 
We could have many more blessings if we had the right, true understanding of a church-state relationship. Don't have time for questions. We'll pick that up next week. But I've got to say something to Dr. Buck. Buck, I've got one or two minutes. And one thing that always strikes me with the history, as it, especially as we start getting into the practical side of this, is those, you know, the men that and women who withstood the type of persecution that they did what did they look like? What would it have been like to live with them, around them? I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that they were the incorrigible ones that were not popular, that no one really liked. And I think sometimes we've got to disavow ourselves of a type of Christianity that is going to be well-liked. If, if we are going to suffer persecution as Christians, we have to understand that people are not going to like us. And they're not going to like us, not because of, or they should not not like us because of something negative in us, but they won't like us because we are not willing to move with the tide. Right. We are not willing to move with the current. Right. And because we're not willing to move, we are inconveniencing, embarrassing something to them that they find incredible. So when we do suffer persecution, if and when, and we, some of us are in different ways at different times, even now, we should take heart in being called incorrigible. Yep. We're incorrigible for Christ. Right. And we're doing it in a way that won't move in order to honor Christ. You know, sometimes we've got to right. be the stick in the mud. And when right. I read this, the history, as you just recounted or brought, right. you know, projects I've worked on in this era before, right. it brings right. a lot of these stories to mind, and it's like, yeah, those would be the people that half the room would look at and go, you know, if he would just right. get with the right. program, right. he's bringing this upon himself. Right. I mean, come on, guy. Right. Just, right. you know, right. everyone's embarrassed because this guy, this woman right. won't, won't just get on with the programming. Right. Right. And we have to remember that. That's what it looks like. Sometimes you're not going to be popular. You're not going to be popular. And like I said, when I read James Nisbet's memoir, 80% of it was prayer praise. Is 80% of our mental life thinking prayer of praise? I know it's not so in my case. Okay. That, that, what it, is it going to take persecution to get us there? I don't know. But I, I'm not, I, I, but, but I think what, we got a wrong image of a super Christian. Okay. Read Daniel. Read Daniel. I, I repeat it again and again. Read Daniel if you want to find out what a Christian is. Read Daniel. Okay. Uh, that's why I started there. That's supposed to be. We'll pick this up next week. There's a lot here. I can't possibly just put touch on it. Next week, we're going into the history of this idea of church and state, and then we're going to get to application. Let's, cl let's close the prayer. And I'll try to leave more time for questions and answers next time. Thank you. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you work in history. We thank you that our faith is based on the triune God. It's patterned after a triune God. The very principles of our doctrine are derived. No person of the God has left out. All three are there together in union and perfect perfect reconciliation. Lord, keep, help us to have a fully balanced faith. Help us to not simplify things and to see extremes in one direction or the other. Lord, we pray for your blessing in these things because we believe, not not for our generation, but maybe our children or children's children, they're going to see this similar persecution that these people went through. Have they read those treatises? Do they understand what's important? Do they understand that the hardest thing in the world to do is to be a Christian and that that's what you have to focus on? Lord, help us to focus on these things. In Jesus' name, amen.
you can take those books if you want to, give them away, or if you don't want them, leave them there, I'll give them to somebody else.